0: The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only. They're not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice.
1: That's right. Today on The Lab Report, we're going to talk to Dr. Michael Luder.
0: Finally, a personalized approach to mental health.
1: Um, I got so many questions, so you know. many things to get into. I, know. I We're going to have to have more than one.
0: The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. So are you gearing up for A4M in Orlando?
1: Uh, shoot. No, not really. What do you mean? I just, I, I, you know, you know me, I fly by the seat of my pants, <laughs> literally. Hello. Hi, Michael Chapman. How are you today? Fantastic. How are you, Patty Devers? I'm
0: doing very well, and I'm Excellent. excited because you and I are taking a trip.
1: Okay. We are taking a trip down to Florida. Florida's, Florida's an interesting place.
0: It is. It's very hot. Oh, my goodness. It's Gators swampy. everywhere. Yeah.
1: It's not my place. I, I don't know. There's, there's probably, there's becoming like fewer and fewer places that I would say are my place. But yeah. like when I was down there, normally when I go down there, if I'm walking around, I do feel like I'm a paranoid person from time to time. Okay. I do feel like I'm an, like a gator's gonna come out and get me because <laughs> they can
0: move fast. They can. Trust me, I know. But I, I will tell you, we're gonna be at the A4M spring congress and i believe most of it's inside so i don't think you need to be all that worried about that's the true. gators
1: that's true that's a great point although i think there are gators within the hotel <laughs> Damn are it, not?
0: i was just thinking
1: that there, there are. are gators yeah. in the so hotel I'm not quite safe <laughs> never mind um anyway this is a podcast it's called the lab report that's no joke there are gators, there are in, are this.
0: gators in this hotel
1: <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> and it's called The Lab Report. Thank you for joining us. It's where we talk about things like functional medicine, specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutics, and apparently gators inside hotels.
0: <laughs> and I just want to say thanks for all the shout-outs that we get on social media of listeners oh, yeah. to the show. It's so awesome. And hopefully you have all subscribed and followed the show on iTunes No or doubt. Truth Spotify. be told.
1: We are here in this little broom closet thing where we record, <laughs> and most of it, as you could probably tell from the content, is just Patty and I kind of messing around, trying to figure out how mm-hmm. to be adults. That's right. And um, when we get feedback that is positive, <laughs> <laughs> I should say if we get feedback that's we positive. We do. We actually do. Then it really makes us feel like maybe we're doing something okay here. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. always nice. Yeah. Um, so thank you for that.
0: But if you are going to the A4M Spring Congress, please stop by the Genova booth. Come meet us. Come say hey. We
1: oh, want to yeah. meet you too. No, seriously. Put, put a face to an A. It's always great, yeah. not only to just like, talk to people for sure, uh, but you know, to answer questions, clinical questions. We get a lot of our content from discussions that we have yep. at places like this. Yeah. We don't get to do it enough as a community of, of practitioners. So it's, it's awesome. All so. right.
0: Well, let me just say, what if there's someone out there, Michael, who will not be attending the Spring Congress and they have questions?
1: Well, they can go to our Discord server, and they can type it in there. They what? can uh, join our substack. can. we have uh, one of those? Do we not? No. Why did I set up all these accounts? <laughs> is that why our MySpace has zero followers? Yep, that's exactly why. I mean, exactly I don't why. even know how many hits there are in our GeoCities.
0: <laughs> okay, well, I'm not even sure what that is, but I'm just going to say that what we do know is that we have an email podcast at gdx.net.
1: That's right, that's right. Hey, and if you're a consumer and you're interested in doing testing, um, and you want to just do it directly, you can go to connect.gdx.net, find more information there about some of our testing that you might hear us talk about here. 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 Anyway, what are we doing today here, Patty?
0: Well, this is going to be a fascinating episode. We're going to speak to Dr. Michael Luder, who is a medical doctor, PhD, researcher in the world of psychiatry, doing some really novel and cool stuff.
1: So we know that mental health is important to health, Mm -hmm. right? And I have to say, I don't know as practitioners, conventional or functional or integrative or what have you, Mm -hmm. how great we are at the area of focus around mental health. I will
0: will say we do somewhat hear it on the phone when we speak to clinicians because people use our tests and we anecdotally hear it. But to your point... Yeah. I'm not sure how good we are at pushing that forward.
1: No, and and, and really systemizing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that being said, Dr. Michael Luter is on the path to systemizing this from an integrative functional medicine approach, both as it relates to uh, what we'll talk about, his genetic findings and what he does there from a testing perspective. And the, the craziest thing is he's working with one of the most challenging as clinicians mm-hmm. populations to work with from a mental health perspective, which is eating disorders. I mean, challenging in the sense of... Complexity. I mean sure. the complexity around eating disorder is one of the reasons why as physicians, anytime it comes up in primary care, you're like, I'm gonna refer. Right. Because I don't feel comfortable. I'm not trained in this.
0: But it's also stigmatized and you know, people have a hard time with this. But Doctor Luter is offering some real important hope for these people and real results. So I'm excited to talk to him.
1: Yeah, it's gonna be great. Without further ado, let's bring on Doctor Luter. Patty today. Yeah, I know. We God. have Dr. Michael Luter. Dr. Michael Luter, let me tell you a little bit. Okay. okay. He is the founder of Precision Psychiatry and a physician scientist who has led the fields of eating disorders, depression, <laughs> depression and anxiety since 2007. Dr. Luter graduated from the University of Chicago in 1996 with a degree in biological chemistry before completing the medical scientist training program at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, where he earned his MD and PhD mm, degrees in smarty. 2003. Smarty pants. His interest in eating disorders began during his psychiatry res- residency, where he ran a research program on the genetics and neurobiological basis of eating disorders at UT Southwestern. That's really interesting. Yeah. And later at the University of Iowa. He transitioned to full-time clinical care working at the Eating Recovery Center in 2016. Dr. Luter founded Precision Psychiatry in 2019 to pursue his vision of integrating new scientific approaches into the treatment of patients with eating disorders, depression, and anxiety. Using the knowledge he's gained from years of genetic behavioral neuroscience, he has recently released a book called Gifted Genetic Information for Treating Eating Disorders. And with that, thank you so much, Dr. Luter. Welcome,
0: Dr. Luter.
2: Oh, thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here today.
0: Yay. Awesome. Well, to be honest, your research and your current practice are so unique and clearly not common in psychiatry. And to begin, you use whole exome sequencing to tailor your therapy for patients with eating disorders. First and foremost, like what is exome sequencing and how is it different from whole genome sequencing?
2: Uh, great question. So, whole genome is all the DNA. In your mm-hmm. chromosomes, and then whole exome is the uh, all of the DNA and the genes, the protein coding genes,
3: okay.
2: About one percent. Um, so each cell in your body has six billion nucleotides, which would be the equivalent of a book that's about four hundred thousand pages long. Mm-hmm. Well, um, so that's a ton of information uh, that you have stored in each cell. So it's just a way of uh, exome I use to just kind of prioritize. Um, you know, looking at a, a more narrow amount of the the DNA uh, where I find most of the relevant mutations to be. So it's just a way of focusing in on an area that's more relevant. There are obviously going to be important genetic factors outside of the exome, mm-hmm. you know, in the non-coding regions, um, but that is not as far along um, in our ability to analyze it yet got it so yeah. you're
0: sort of cutting through the noise then for the information that you need for your research is it so it's it's proteins as it enzymes is it the receptors of various proteins and enzymes what are you looking? well this at? is
2: one of the great advantages of the whole exome is it's unbiased it looks okay. at everything so one of the problems in psychiatry is um you know, we had medications that worked for things before we had diagnoses.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, it has kind of led the field down the path of, you know, serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, uh, you know, maybe glutamate, GABA. Um, and most of the research w- in the field is uh, based upon these hypotheses, based upon what medications work.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I really took a different approach where I'm like, let's just take an unbiased view. Let's look at every gene in the body and let's just identify which genes are most likely to have damaging mutations in them. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something I started when I was still at Iowa back in 2015, 2016. It was really the last project I did before I like left academia was just to take a, 100 patients with eating disorders. Uh, the first 100 we collected, we sequenced all of their genes with you know com- no idea what we were going to find. And then I was working with a human geneticist at the time who uh, developed a way of statistically... Um, determining which genes were more likely to have damaging mutations in them than um, in people without eating disorders. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, it, I will say the results have been shocking. It is the complete opposite of, of what you would have guessed, awesome. uh, which is the advantage of an unprized approach. Right. Is that you yeah. You usually find things that you would never have looked for otherwise. Yes. Right.
1: No, that's super interesting because you answered one of the questions that came up, which was like, you know, if you have this information, I think a lot of people would make some assumptions on what genes or what enzymes they'd be looking for, whether like that's like COMT or MTHFR. And they're gonna say, we're going to look for this. But what you did was actually look at everything and just allow the data to do the walking. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So well, you- you need a fair number of people to get started with that. Cause if you just look at one person's exome, it's kind of all over the place, you sure, know, yeah. but once you start looking at, you know, 10, 20, 30, a hundred patterns definitely like pop out very quickly. Yeah. Um,
1: That's interesting. Well, so one of the things too is, you know, we do some genetic testing and a lot of our audience is familiar with different types of genetic testing. And one of the things that we always say from a clinical perspective is, you know, your genes are not your destiny. Like so many things from an epigenetic standpoint can turn them on, turn them off. And uh, that type of a a hopefully balanced approach. Would you say it's the same with respect to what you're working with, with exomes and, and how to use that information to treat, or is it a little bit different in this case?
2: Uh, No, I agree. I mean, the environmental component in psychiatry is very um, important uh, to how these pathways work. So let's use an example here of uh, of anorexia. So the most common mutation we find, uh, or the most common pathway that we find mutated in patients with anorexia is in beta oxidation of fatty acids, right? Mm -hmm. So there are all these impairments in um, the ability to make uh, carnitine, and then in the import and uh, breakdown of long chain fatty acids into the mitochondria. So the, the CPT one and two genes are more likely to be mutated. All the genes involved in making carnitine are more likely to be mutated, right? So that uh, shows that these patients at baseline have an impaired ability to utilize beta oxidation for energy, right? Mm-hmm. So how does that play in, in, uh, in, into the environment? Well, we know two of the biggest triggers for uh Episodes of restriction and anorexia are going to be diets restrictive diets Mm -hmm. and then uh, these um, High-calorie meals so patients with anorexia have a specific phobia for fat, you know, they specifically don't like uh, to eat fat and that It's been always kind of puzzling to people because But this makes perfect sense now, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have a hard time with breaking down fat, you're not going to want to eat fat and what happens when we're fasting, right? You start releasing stored fatty acids, triglycerides mm-hmm. to break down as fat. So now all of a sudden your cells are fled, flooded with these triglycerides that are broken down into fatty acids that you can uh, not effectively metabolize. And you build up, I think, byproducts of the, of the fatty acid uh, beta-oxidation pathway. And that is what triggers this strong aversion to fat. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of how you, you know probably if you're just going along and you don't have very high energy requirements, Um, You're probably all right, but you know, you get into some kind of endurance sport, you know, like, you know, long distance running, you know, ballet or, or or whatever it is, your energy requirements go up, you start releasing fatty acids, or you start eating more. And then all of a sudden that triggers uh, this pathway, you know, where you're no longer able to adapt like uh, a a regular person would. Mm -hmm. um, And that uh, leads to the illness.
0: But then, like, can, can other things turn these things on and off, like toxins, like environmental influences and in toxins from the exposome?
2: I don't know that much about toxins. Okay. Um, the, uh, the, I'm sure there are things that turn the beta-oxidation pathway on and off, anything that's going to increase peroxisomes obviously will Mm. increase the pathway, or mitochondrial biogenesis. So there probably are things, although I I will say a lot of transcription factors involved in mitochondrial biogenesis and in peroxisomal biogenesis are also more commonly mutated. Mm. So Mm. one of the most common genes I see mutated is PPR-alpha, Or uh, PPAR1AG, so PGC1-alpha and beta, are very commonly mutated. Hmm. And those are sort of master regulators of of biogenesis. So some of the transcriptional pathways um, are also targets of of these damaging mutations.
1: Yeah.
3: yeah.
1: It's fascinating, too. And it's almost like a, a... a downward spiral because if you have that sort of dysfunction in beta oxidation and then it's leading you to this capacity or this desire to essentially not consume, you're not likely to be getting some of the cofactors, vitamin B vitamins, magnesium, Mm -hmm. carnitine, some of the things that also would assist you in beta oxidation. So it's,
2: man, I can see where that's going. No. And that was the, one of the other things I found really interesting is we've in the field, we've known a long time that, you know, people will do all right. They're chugging along, you know, 90, 95% of ideal body weight, and then they just dip below this threshold and they just spiral, mm. yeah. you know, and, and they yeah. just very rapidly lose weight, which is the complete opposite of what you see when most people go on a diet, right? Mm. You know, I always joke that anorexia is the 1% of the population where diets actually work. you mm. know? Right. And, I, and I think a big part of that is that um, as they start restricting, they just have less reserves of these um, because... So, so, so the first thing that popped out in the analysis was beta oxidation, but then second was thiamine. So almost all the genes involved in thiamine, um, uptake and, you know, conversion of thiamine into thiamine pyrophosphate and uptake of thiamine pyrophosphate into the mitochondria, you know, by SLC, um, what is it? 25 a 19, almost all of those are target uh, more likely to be mutated as well. Huh. Um, and that makes sense, you know, because thiamine is critical for a lot of the pathways, you know, um, pyruvate deep carboxylase, right. mm. uh, um, uh, branch chain amino acid breakdown and yep. uh, alpha ketoglutarate dehydrogenase, all of those are targets of thiamine. And then from there, you, you know, it's b12, it was biotin, uh, panthenoic acid, um, folate, of course, you know, is very common in psychiatry. Um, so um, what I found overall is um, five B vitamins, and then um, carnitine, lipoic acid, um, uh i'm missing two of them uh glutathione and uh, coq10 wow. all of those are more likely uh to be have damaging mutations in people with eating disorders
3: yeah wow um
2: so, so that's actually what led me to to NutriVal in the first place is i you know i found beta oxidation and then thiamine and then you know a lot of the other vitamins and cofactors i'm like i need to start measuring this yeah stuff, right? yeah and, and um, it was actually a mother of a patient brought this to me and I looked at it and it was like this eureka moment. I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know, for like a, a very reasonable amount of money, I can measure all of this stuff, simultaneously, <laughs> you know, and it, 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 it's really been glorious, uh, to be able to now do the testing, complement that with the neutral testing and then get like everything I would have ever wanted plus more. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, it's been really great. So, so, so I had the cofactors and then the, thir- and then the last thing that popped out um, uh, last year, which I figured out was branched chain amino acids and then um, uh, lysine and phenylalanine. So um, those, uh, so it's the five amino acids, it's uh, beta oxidation of long chain fatty acids and then the cofactors. And, and, and that pretty much covers most of restrictive type of anorexia or, or what I found so far. Um, so it's been, uh, it's been magnificent cause like I said, for the, for the test, uh, I can look at everything I would have wanted to, um, and get a really good idea of what's going on with their metabolism.
1: That's it's Go so fascinating. Nutravel. Yeah. yeah. I, well, and one yeah. of the things too, as you were listing those off, I was actually thinking about some of the biomarkers that we have that we know a little bit of kind of anecdotal evidence. Like, there's a couple organic acids, like glutaric acid, glycine r two that we commonly see in people who are uh, are fasting or are anorexic, and mm-hmm. we don't have any research to necessarily say that. It's just something we've noticed internally, anecdotally. Um, and yeah. so if to have you lay those out with that sort of complement, as you said, of the genetic component for to make sense, not only for the B1 and the B vitamin triggers, but also the beta oxidation like glutaric acid, mm-hmm. that's that's indicative of mitochondrial impairment. And so I never knew what sort of connection was there. That's it's now just we putting know. it all together. Now it's amazing. Now we know. Yeah. But
0: well, Dr. Luer, yep. I, w- I want to take this a step further because all of this research is fascinating and it's correlative. But at this point, so I want you to talk about how you apply this concept in your practice. So can you give us a few examples of how these genetic mutations or sequences can change your therapy for a patient with something like anorexia or bulimia?
2: The the easiest ones are always the vitamin supplement deficiencies. Uh-huh. So, you, you know, people who are deficient in carnitine synthesis are pretty straightforward to, to manage. Mm-hmm. It's much harder, you know, if they have like a CPT1 or 2 mutation in which they can't import it. So um, in those cases, you know, we're switching from a diet high in long-chain fatty acids to one in medium-chain fatty acids, which are going to be easier to import. Um, a, I, um, a lot of the patients who have the branch chain uh, amino acid um, mutations in that pathway or in the, or in the lysine or phenylalanine fel- pathway were already vegan or vegetarian, which I thought was wow. really interesting. They sort of naturally learned that, that um, I think, um, you know, they intuitively, their body knows not to eat these things. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, just going to, a, a low animal protein diet, um, you know, getting enough protein for their basic needs, but not excessive to the, the point where, you know, it's going to create problems like that. Um, so supplementing, uh, you know, the vitamins is pretty straightforward, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, extra thiamine, B12 injections, uh, giving lipoic acid, CoQ10, um, carnitine are pretty straightforward. Uh, it gets a little bit trickier with medications. So there are a few approaches that I've, I've used. Um, so, um, you can ramp up some of these pathways with medications, uh, like the PPR alpha, ga- or not alpha, uh, the, ba- uh, gamma agonists. So, uh, okay. piaglitazone is one that I use in patients with eating disorders sometimes, uh, depending on the pathway, especially if they have like a PGC one alpha or, or, um, beta mutation that tends to increase uh, the expression of a lot of these enzymes and works pretty well. Um, and then... Uh, mTOR inhibitors so the the thing i've started working with more recently is i I have reason to believe that mTOR is the nutrient sensor that's getting activated by the buildup of of branch chain amino acids and by long chain fatty acids that's uh, telling people not to eat Mm. so for really severe cases uh, i've started using mTOR inhibitors to try to silence that pathway and, and, and turn it off
0: with, where, with, wow. with clinical improvement, just based on vitamin supplementation and some of these like mTOR medications, J- you're getting clinical improvement in these eating disorders.
2: Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's wow. the first thing that's really started to decrease eating disorder thoughts. Um, wow. and it's not in everybody. Um, obviously, the, the I always love it when it's a vitamin or nutrient deficiency or something that we can do with diet. Those are the easiest ones. The hardest people to treat are the ones who have mutations in the mTOR pathway. um, Because, you know, then we've got to directly go in with a medication to try to target it. Uh, Those are, so I've, you know, I've used rapamycin now in probably five or six cases. Mm -hmm. And I would say we've had pretty good success so far in four, uh, one of them in health depression but not the eating disorder, and then one we just started, so. (laughs) it's still up in the air, but for these really severe cases, you know, these patients who are, you know, what we call enduring anorexia, who really don't ever achieve any period of recovery and they're in and out of treatment for, you know, decades at a time. Mm -hmm. Um, it is something that I've I've started to use, um, with some early success.
0: Well, it brings up the question then where's the line between the, the behavioral neuroscience and then things like psychotherapy and, Mm -hmm. and I mean, are both still necessary in some of these patients?
2: Well, what I tell everybody is, this doesn't replace therapy and nutrition, right? So the, the standard treatment for eating disorders, you're gonna have a therapist, a dietitian, um, and then uh, a medical doc. And that could either be a psychiatrist. Um, and or we could have a, a medical just a regular, you know, PCP, if, if needed. Um, I always tell people that therapy and nutrition are one A and one B, right. And if you can manage this with psychotherapy, and with diet, that is the way to go. And then I come in in cases where people are stuck, and then I try to identify why they're stuck and help them, right? So if it's something simple like a vitamin deficiency or a cofactor deficiency, that's great. That makes um, my job easy. We can supplement that. And then that allows them to go back to their therapist or dietitian and continue the work. Um, So I don't ever minimize the role, you know that is where most of the work of recovery go, it takes place um, but there are just some people who have biochemical factors that make it impossible for them to engage in normal therapies and i think for those folks we are able to offer something now Hmm. Uh, knew that they've not had before. That's fascinating. Yeah,
1: and I think some of what I'm sensing in you, Patty, is like we know how difficult this th- that eating disorders to <laughs> treat. Sure. Um, and yeah. it's, it's one of those areas that I think as clinicians we're often like once it, once that arises in the clinical history, we're like, okay, I'm immediately referring right. this out because I'm sure. way in right. over my head. Yep. And so the fact that You know, we do tend to think of it as being so psychoanalysis heavy or cognitive behavioral therapy heavy. But the fact that you can give it this sort of tangible material um, rationalization to it well, like it gives the clinician in your case so much power back because and it provides power to the patient to know that it's not just something that
2: they.
0: You're not crazy. This is a biochemical problem. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of guilt and shame with eating disorders, you know, that's just like, why can't you just eat? you know, kind of idea. Mm. Um, So I think it does relieve a lot of that guilt and shame and gives people like a a tangible thing to go after. Uh, I I just have to remind them, you know, like you said, genes are not destiny. You you know, just because something has a genetic component doesn't mean it's not treatable, right? Right. The the really fascinating implication, right, though, is that, you know, I would say, especially in anorexia, the the view is that uh, it's sort of like this ocd you that, that people have become afraid of something and they have these compulsive, you know, rituals around it and that to treat them, you have to expose them to it. Right. So there, you know, a lot of treatment centers pr- pride themselves on, you know, getting patients bacon, you know, high fat foods or sweet foods, you, you know, protein, you know, animal protein, you know, they, they, they won't allow people to be vegan or vegetarian. You know, you've got to eat animal protein, um, you, you know, because you have to expose to it and you have to like, learn to deal with the fear. You know, and what this suggests is the complete opposite, actually, that these folks may actually have a biochemical reason, you know, a genetic reason that their bodies can't metabolize these things. And we may actually want to cut out some of these foods that they're afraid of, you know, right. that the patients are, have been telling us all along that there's a reason yeah. they can't eat. Yeah. So that that is going to be interesting because that will be a big change from the current treatment paradigm in the field. And I'll be interested to see what the pushback is, yeah. um, mm-hmm. you know, when I'm like, yeah, you know, we may want to go with you know a low animal protein you know um you know low fat diet kind of um uh, approach you more like a you know like a blue zone diet like a mediterranean diet kind of thing and um i I don't know what the response will be i think i think it's gonna um i i think there'll be a lot of pushback Uh, yeah
0: we can't really argue with success though right like if you're starting to see real results here how can you push back you know
2: uh i I think i'm like in a single case. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, if I've got like somebody's, you know, gene mutation, um, you know, and I could say, okay, look, you know, they can't break down lysine, you know, so they need to be, you know, vegan, you know, people are pretty receptive to that, mm-hmm. you know, as long as they're not protein malnourished, but like, I can't do whole exome like, sequencing on, you know, 1% of the population. Sure, like, it's sure. Right
3: Yeah. 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 So, yeah.
2: So I, I don't know if it'll be more broadly, uh, adopted with, you know, unless, um, we're able to like, um, do that you know that was one of the things that really excited me about nutrival mm-hmm. was you know it's very hard to learn to read exome sequencing right yep. it took me years to do it it's very hard to train people so i've been desperately like trying to find ways of, of doing testing or supplements that i can just train people you know in a week or in a month that doesn't take years and years and years so I, you know my hope is that with something like nutrival and then, you know, maybe a little bit of supplemental testing or whatever that we can scale this up where this will be something that a lot of clinicians can do, yeah. um, and, and make this, you know, much more accessible than, you know, me and I can only do a few a week right now.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. so, so, so that was really exciting. Um, because the, uh, the reports are so easy to read and so actionable um, that, that is something I think I can start taking and training people on how to do the, the exome sequencing is very hard because most of these mutations are what we call what like ultra rare or novel, right? Mm-hmm. So, so most of these mutations are highly damaging, but like, you know, one in a million, one in a hundred thousand never seen before anywhere in the world. So you've got to be able to go in and read these reports in a way where you can be like, yeah, that is functional. You know, that's a mutation that's actually doing something. Whereas most of the mutations are you know, either harmless or just normal variants. So sorting out, the, you know, the, the, the noise from the, uh, the the chaff, the signal from the noise uh, is a very hard thing. Uh, is a very time-living uh, factor right now.
1: Right, right. Well, yeah, and there's not a lot of clinicians out there that are going to be able to just like, oh, yeah, that's obviously branched-chain ketoacid dehydrogenase, <laughs> right? Like that,
2: that's the problem. But they can look yeah. at the NutriVal
0: and get the <laughs> NutriVal, right, right.
2: Right. And definitely no psychiatrist who could do that. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I, and on that front, too, I mean, you mentioned doing the nutritional testing like NutriVal um, and the exome testing. What about Are there other tests that you find have similar actionability, uh, at least in the patient population that you're working with?
2: Um, so, so the other one that popped out surprisingly was vitamin D. Yeah. Uh, a lot of patients have mutations where uh, they get toxic on vitamin D. Um, so they have mm. mutations in the genes involved in, in uh, counter-regulation of vitamin D levels. That was pretty surprising to me because uh-huh. uh, supplementing vitamin D and calcium is almost universal right. in the eating for population. But there's clearly, you know, 5%, 10% of patients who have uh, vitamin D toxicosis. You know, it's too oh. high. Hmm. Um, so that's one that um, I've looked at. There are a few people who have... Um, hetrahydrobiopterin deficiency.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, so those genes are more likely to be mutated. So they have lower levels of uh, serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. I, I'm trying to remember. Do you have some of those metabolites in the tests? Uh, uh,
1: just in the phenylalanine tyrosine pathway. I don't know. You know, that would probably be the only way to, if you're seeing a backup in, let's say, phenylalanine. That they're yeah. from yeah. the trying, yeah.
2: You don't have like homo acid, right? Yeah, or... we do. We do. Yep. Do you? Okay. yep. Yeah. you? Um, so, yeah. So that was another one. Um that I sometimes look at that pops up fairly regularly as well. Um, and then I, I want to get into more of the stool testing, mm-hmm. you know, I, like I'm hundred percent certain there's going to be stuff there. Yep. But the last time I looked at that literature, it's still kind of a mess. It's been a few years. Maybe it's, it's more, makes more sense now, but, um, I've not ventured into the microbiome stool stuff yet, but I'm sure there's going to be stuff.
0: Yeah. How, about, how about hormones, other types of hormones?
2: So that's actually the next field I'm going into um, so I'm kind of wrapping up the eating disorder part, uh, in terms of the discovery, and I'm now looking uh, a lot at, uh, women's mental health. Yeah. So postpartum depression, uh, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, and that is fascinating stuff is popping out of there, uh, very quickly. So that, wow. that pathway is very clear. That was actually very easy to do. And there's just gold <laughs> everywhere. Like there's so many mutations in the steroid hormone synthesis pathway,
3: yeah.
2: um, and The great thing about that is they're all easy to treat because all the intermediates are available as supplements. (laughs) Right. So, so you you know, like one of the most common ones I see is in uh, uh, star, S-T-A-R. So so making pregnenolone, you know, which is the precursor to most steroid hormones. You know, I have a lot of patients with mutations in that pathway, and they all have low testosterone, low estrogen, low progesterone um very high levels of anxiety uh, insomnia postpartum depression and they are and it's pretty straightforward to treat by just supplementing pregnenolone mm-hmm.
3: um
2: so, so so that has been really fun um because those pathways are pretty well worked out the genetics are pretty clear and that that's a case where it, it kind of actually makes sense you know as something you would have maybe predicted going into it um, so, so that has been really, uh, and then obviously, uh, aldosterone and cortisol, uh, levels are disrupted as well. So, um, I'm doing a lot more hormone testing, uh, recently, um, to try to work those pathways out. So that's been very satisfying.
1: Yeah, I love that. And it's amazing too, the overlap that we sometimes see with so many different other clinical conditions. Like you were talking before with eating disorder, the the two things that sounded like were coming out of there was energy production or mitochondrial function and oxidative stress. And it's like, uh, how many other of our clinical conditions, whether that's mental health or even physical, like diabetes yeah. or cardiovascular or, or, or disease, or like it's like oxidative right. stress and, like, and, and mitochondrial dysfunction. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think it's going to, in psychiatry, I think it's gonna be a very common theme. I don't know about other fields. You know, I I know a little bit about diabetes, obesity kind of stuff. And, you know, I know that's a a popular topic. But I think for depression, uh, anxiety, especially a a lot of these. you know, uh, the, uh, the metabolic part. And I think there's a book that came on. He might've been on your podcast, right? Um, oh, we're
1: trying. Oh, Are you talking Chris, about brain Chris energy? Chris Palmer.
2: Yeah. Brain. Yeah. Brain energy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Come on yeah. our show. Chris. So, so, so that was really interesting <laughs> yeah. that, um, you know, that, uh, um, I, I, w- I was mostly done with my book when I, when I saw that one, yeah. but right. whenever you see somebody else like independently coming up with like a similar idea, like yeah. you, you know, you're on the right path, For sure, right? Yeah. Because like, um, you know, we were, we kind of had completely different approaches and it was like, Oh, you know, I think there's really something here. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, yes. and, and I'm going to ask another question cause I have a million of them, but like the, you mentioned OCD and the relationships around how, at least from a treatment standpoint, historically we've, they've been focused on exposure therapy, but are you, do you notice similar sort of genetics or exome results with respect to obsessive compulsive disorder?
2: So, so OCD and restrictive type anorexia are uh, there's a lot of overlap. So if you look at like GWAS studies, they're, they're very closely related. Um, uh, uh, you know, OCD is about one to 2% of the general population. It's, you know, some, some reports have shown that it's 40% of patients with a restrictive uh, anorexia also have OCD. Wow. The remaining uh, 60% of patients have very high levels of OCD like traits. So perfectionism, harm avoidance. Um, so so there is a huge overlap. Um, I, I think so uh, it, it's clear that some of the genes I find also predisposed to OCD, uh, especially in the mitochondrial pathways. Um, it's not, uh, it, it's hard for me to tease out because so many of my anorexia patients also have OCD. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm not entirely sure, but I think there is going to be a very important overlap.
0: What what about things with addiction, like opioid addiction, and some of these pathways that may be similar to, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder or anorexia or bulimia? Is there any crossover with addictive personalities?
2: Um, I haven't looked much at drugs of abuse. Um, the, the opioid pathway, the endogenous opioid pathway, is also more commonly mutated in people with eating disorders. Not so much anorexia, but... Um, you know, there's a, there's a single nucleotide uh, SNP uh, um, polymorphism that prevents you from making beta endorphin. So it's mm-hmm. in the, the cleavage site. And that I do see overrepresented in patients with sort of more atypical eating disorder features. So low levels of beta endorphin are going to be, I think, um, will be more common. It's about two out of 1,000 people in the population. Mm-hmm. But I see it in, uh, much more commonly in the eating disorder population. The one that jumps out is going to be alcohol. There's a lot of overlap between alcoholism and um, eating disorders, and I have a lot of patients with alcoholism in my sample. I haven't gone back and really rigorously looked at it, but because you know alcohol is a nutrient, I'm uh, I'm intrigued by the possibility that alcoholism may be in part due to the fact that it's a more readily accessible nutrient for some for hmm. some people. I think oh. there's like a metabolic link
1: oh interesting uh-huh. the, the capacity to use alcohol for energy in that okay
2: yeah R- over Whoa. over fat
1: over beta wow. oxidation huh that's that's fascinating wow um well it, it just makes me wonder too because there's obviously so many potential applications that you're we're seeing in what you're doing with precision psychiatry and, and really use it a lot, this personalized approach why why is it that um, there's maybe not more people like yourself doing such amazing work. <laughs> just,
0: just, just Dr. Luther and Chris Palmer. <laughs> that appears to be it.
2: <laughs> well, you know, well, well the, the short answer is it took me like decades to be able to do this, right? So, right, right? so what was funny is my, my PhD, I went into a lab that was studying apoptosis and, uh, I ended up working on mitochondria, you know, cytochrome C release by, sort of by accident. So I sort of like, my PhD, I sort of stumbled into um, mitochondria by accident. And then like, I got interested in, in psychiatry and I'm, I'm interviewing for my psychiatry residency, you know, and all, they're all asking me like, oh, what did you do your PhD on? And I'm like, oh, you know, my mitochondria, you know, biochemistry. And they're like, well, that's not gonna be relevant to psychiatry, you know, you're gonna have to find something new and lo and behold, you know, I, I do eating disorders. I do a completely unbiased approach and like, I'm right back in my country.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it really was my <laughs> destiny in, in,
2: in life. Right. But like, you know, so I'm a, you know, a PhD looking at mitochondrial bio, you know, biochemistry, you know, then I did a postdoc looking at, you know, behavioral neuroscience, then I got additional training in genetics, you know, and, and then we looked at some of the early stuff on whole exome sequencing and these family studies to find these rare mutations. It, it um, there's just very few people who can do all of those things. Mm. Um, So, you know, most um, I talk about this a little bit in the book, the the incentive so much, so much of the incentives in medicine, whether it's at the NIH level to do basic science research, or at the uh, level of pharmaceutical companies is things that apply to a lot of people, You, you know, these evidence based medicine approaches, and there just aren't the financial incentives in place to do precision medicine yet. Right. You know, yeah. maybe someday we'll be able to, but you know, finding uh, something that works for one person and uh, designing a treatment around that, there's just no financial incentive to do it. Mm. Yeah. You know, yeah. like yeah. So, so, a great example of that is the most common cause of bulimia we find is in uh, mutations in GLP one glucagon like peptide mm. one. So there are clearly a subset of patients with bulimia nervosa who have a hard time making either GLP one. GLP-2 or oxymodulin, and they respond amazingly well to GLP-1 agonists, right? I've been doing this long before uh, Ozempic and, you know, Manjaro yes, and all of that. Yeah. You know, I was using Glutide, you know, back in probably 2017, 2018. And it works amazingly well. Like, their bulimia goes away, like, very quickly. But you know, back then it was like over a thousand dollars. It still is over a thousand dollars a month for treatment. So I would call these insurance companies. And if I could, you know, get a director on the line, I'd be like, yeah, you know, they've got of mutation in this gene and they can't make GLP one. So we get back, you know, sexenda or, you know, something like that. And they got better. And, and it was like crickets, you know, like, right. <laughs> like, there's just no way to explain any of this stuff, the right. insurance company, and they're going to pay for it, you know, let alone, like, you know, trying to get a whole exome sequencing paid for. So all of this is cash pay, um, a, a, a part of the country that can do that. Not everybody can do it. So right. we've got to figure out a way how to bring more precision medicine approaches in that are going to, um, that insurance companies will pay for, right? But, but it, it goes against com- the complete idea of, of the traditional evidence based medicine approaches where you have these large groups that you study in a randomized controlled trial. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like how do you treat somebody with the only this you know, the only person in the world with this one mutation. Yes. Right.
1: No, it, it's that's incredibly well said and i feel like you also kind of brought it full circle from the beginning because like you were saying originally a lot of the drugs and therefore the pathways that we were thinking about are based on the fact that we found a drug that happened to do something you know like ssris but, wasn't right. even for mental health i don't believe i think it was like a, they were trying to have like a cardiovascular or maybe a it
2: was a uh, tuberculosis uh, oh there we go even <laughs> the first, <laughs> antip- pro- first present was a, a tuberculosis drug and the first antipsychotic was uh to prevent uh uh uh, saliva during surgery it was to like decrease mouth secretions yeah Yeah.
1: and so and they stumble upon this thing and they're like oh well maybe serotonin's involved and there you go everyone's looking at the serotonin Mm -hmm. pathway but you're doing it bottom up right you're saying well let's let's not start with any limitations let's see actually what's mutated yeah so it's fascinating it's great Well,
0: well for people who are out there listening either patients or clinicians, I'm sure there are many people out there who will come to seek you out. And after hearing this saying, I must see Dr. Luter, <laughs> how do people find you to work with you or how do clinicians send clients to you for help?
2: Uh, so I have a website, just had it over uh, redone. It's precision-psychiatry.com. Uh, um, or if you just Google my name, Michael Luter, uh, I'll come right up. Wonder- um, Wonderful. So it's, it's very easy to get I'm a pretty easy person to find now.
0: <laughs> as well as your book. Yeah, which...
2: sure, I'm sure I'll get lots of hate mail soon from, from what? the eating field. No, field. No, no, but,
0: but even your book is just a phenomenal resource for, for clinicians and for patients. And we're going to link to that in the show notes and it can be found on Amazon or, oh, that would be great. Thank or, you. or Dr. Luter's website as well. And this it has been so eye-opening and fascinating to me. I don't even know what to say about yeah, this. Super cool. This is so great. Cool. And we can't thank you enough for spending time with us and, and sharing your expertise and, and taking all of our goofy questions. Cool. <laughs> but but that being said, before we let you go, Dr. Luter, we do have one last question that I'm gonna to kick to the Chat.
1: Oh yeah, I have a non-science related, just ridiculous question for everyone. <laughs> so uh, this one is this is gonna be a uh, catch you off card. Um, <laughs> What, what, what do you think, Dr. Luder, is the best smell on the planet?
2: Um, my favorite smell is when I am warming up a heavy cream, vanilla, and sugar to make creme brulee.
0: Yum. Ooh, wow, wow, that's magical. You can actually smell that uh, in I, your brain, I can, right? I can
1: absolutely get it right now. Yeah. yeah, I'm like,
2: if they made a candle of that, I would just buy that candle all the time. But yeah, <laughs> I, I love I love that smell. Uh, you know, when when you're kind of heating it up, before oh. you you put it in the ramekins to bake, like that is a uh, that is heavenly. No. Okay.
1: And now we know that you make your own creme brulee. Now we've got now more mean. questions.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. Well, again, Dr. Michael Luter, this has been so eye-opening. We're so grateful for your time. And like I said, we're going to encourage all the listeners to go to precision-psychiatry.com. And we're going to link to your book in the show notes. And thank you so much for your expertise, sir. Oh,
2: well, thank you for allowing me to come on the show and geek out a little bit about biopinology. That's great. It's great. I appreciate it. All right. Y'all take care now.
1: (laughs) Patty, I'm so excited about the future of this medicine. Mm -hmm. I mean... You know, I've got a little bit of a sweet spot around mental health and mm-hmm. psychology. Well, that, was, psychology that, your, that was your
0: undergrad, right? It
1: was, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I wanted to be a clinical psychologist, actually.
0: Right, and here we are, and you're in functional medicine. And like I said earlier, we speak to these clinicians all the time on the phone. We see how much of a difference nutrition or, or yeah. you know, changing your microbiome can yeah. do to mood and not only eating disorders, but anxiety, depression, and that gut-brain axis, and nutrition really does help, too.
1: For sure. You know what else helps with my mental health? Being on this podcast with me? Well, that. Oh, and creme brulee. <laughs> Next time on The Lab Report, we're going to talk about magnets. What kind of magnets? I don't know. I just, I don't know much that about magnets fun. and how they work.
0: Everyone loves a good magnet. Right. like a refrigerator There's MRIs.
1: Magnet. I mean, that's clinical. When
0: well, these are refrigerator magnets.
1: So much to learn.
0: You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at one 800 522 4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net.
1: So after all this time, uh-huh. And all of us down here who happen to have degrees in something called medicine, yes. we're all like, hey, I'm familiar. You should probably have that thing in your mouth fixed because it's probably why you have cellulitis of the head.
0: Yeah. Okay, so I've had this tooth. I've been fighting it. I'm do good. I took some antibiotics. I went to the dentist. You <laughs>
1: took antibiotics then- for cellul- cranial cellulitis, <laughs> orbital cellulitis. That's not doing no. good, Patty.
0: Well, I know it had to be fixed, but I had to save up because it costs thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. We should have all been dentists.
1: No, no. I see you're trying to bait me down a different trail around dentistry. But what I'm talking about here is the fact, you know what else Um, costs thousands and thousands of what? dollars? A funeral. Oh.
0: <gasps> Wow, but I wouldn't have to pay for it.
1: (laughs) Good point.